0: Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, uh, I won't pretend this is an exhaustive account of the events leading up to uh, the assassination of um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, because otherwise you'd be here till about 10 o'clock at night. Um, but what I will try and do is sketch out the main events leading up to it and the uh, political background in Serbia. Um, when I was an ambassador in Belgrade I actually met one of the descendants of one of the assassins which was quite an interesting experience. Um, I put up this slide from a a book that's recently come out which is um, regarded as uh, what they call counterfactual. Um, The alternative title is um, Archduke Found Alive First World War a mistake, (laughs) Um, but um, sadly that wasn't really the way things panned out. By the end of this year there will be very few people who won't recognise the photographs behind me of, of Gavrilo Princip, the juvenile who with two bullets triggered the concatenation of events leading to the Great War, the war from which All other calamities of the 20th century sprang uh, and his victims, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie. Assassinations of royals, presidents and prime ministers were an occupational hazard at the outset of the 20th century. Look at this list. These are the major assassinations between 1900 and 1913, the very bottom one you may not be able to read, is, is, um, is the King of Greece. But these are the major assassinations, not the minor assassinations, still less the attempted assassinations. And gives you some idea of the atmosphere uh, in early 20th century. Um, well, not just Europe, but also, as you can see from near the top, the, um, the President of the United States. So it was a general... Um, general problem there was one assassination a regicide which caused particular shock and horror to European public opinion and of course to its crowned heads and that was the uh, regicide the killing in 1903 of the Serbian King Alexander Obrenovic and his spectacularly unpopular wife Draga they were murdered their bodies were mutilated in the most gruesome manner and defenestrated by a group of 28 Serbian army soldiers. The king, through his autocratic methods, his low opinion of the army, his rumored intention to appoint uh, Queen Draga's brother as his anointed successor, as they'd failed to produce an heir themselves, and his austrophile foreign policy were all elements in the mix which alienated key elements in the army who were, in a largely agrarian society, the most significant and powerful institution. Queen Draga had been the king's mistress and had a highly unsavoury reputation. When a member of the cabinet tried to dissuade the king from marrying her with the memorable line, She has been everyone's mistress, sir, including mine. (laughs) He he not surprisingly got a slap across the face for his troubles. Within hours of the assassination, the group of army officers had effectively appointed the leader of the rival Serbian dynasty, Peter Karat Georgievich, who was in exile in Switzerland as the new monarch. The new king, His family, and indeed the government, were, if not entirely beholden to the regicides, very conscious of the need not to alienate them. The key figure among the regicides, and someone we shall return to frequently, was Dragutin Dmitrievich, known as Apis, after the Egyptian bull god of similarly massive build. Apis, in the centre there, was a born conspirator, secretive, ruthless, and entirely dedicated to his Pan-Slav mission. His last reported reported words before he was executed by firing squad on the orders of the Serbian Prince Regent in 1917 were, long live Yugoslavia. It says something incidentally for his bull-like frame that it took three salvos of the firing squad to kill him. But we're now getting ahead of ourselves. When the new King Petar came to the throne in 1903, he made it clear that he wanted to be a constitutional monarch, unlike his ill-fated predecessor. He also set about improving the army's conditions of service and ruled out any prosecution of the regicides. The latter would meet regularly, particularly on the anniversaries of the murder, to celebrate and boast of their exploits. The government was led at this time by Nikola Pašić, a politician who had to face some of the most demanding existential questions which any government has ever had to meet. He was Prime Minister with a few breaks, but not very many, from 1904 to 1928. Cautious and slow of diction, but an excellent communicator, he became increasingly a patriarchal figure to the Serbian people. He balanced the need not to (coughs) alienate the regicides by the equally vital requirement to clip their wings. So while he acknowledged the legitimacy of the coup d'etat, which was a matter of some importance to the regicides, he succeeded in having many of the senior officers pensioned off. This had a couple of negative points. Some of the younger officers proved to be just as, if not more nationalistic than the original conspirators. And most importantly, the one person who was fireproof, immune from dismissal, was the most irredentist of all, the notorious Apis, who lauded it at meetings of the conspirators and their admirers and supporters. The idea of the unification of all the Southern Slavs was one that went back into the early 19th century. The Serb take on it was that most, if not all, were essentially Serbs, regardless of their current nationality or religion. And Serbia would be the leading light of the move to unity, the Piedmont, as they like to call themselves, of South Slav unification, recalling Piedmont's pivotal role in the unification of Italy. We shall return to the word Piedmont later. At this time, Serbia was a long way from achieving its goals. Admittedly, Serbia and Montenegro had been independent kingdoms since the Congress of Berlin in 1878, but Bosnia and Slovenia were under Habsburg administration and much of the rest was still Ottoman. Of course, Austrian administration of Bosnia had not been achieved without a struggle. Austria's takeover in 1878 provoked a serious rebellion in which Orthodox Serbs joined a Muslim-led offensive against the occupying foreign power. Both religions were hoping for some advanced form of self-rule, rather than exchanging one colonial rule for another. The Austrians eventually restored peace, but not before fielding over a quarter of a million men, about a third of their total combat capability. Yet this stasis was initially shaken by an event which appeared to be a major setback for Serbian irredentism, the formal annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina by Austria-Hungary in 1908. The public reaction in Serbia was one of fury, despite the fact that in practice nothing was changing, as Bosnia-Herzegovina had for 30 years been under Habsburg administration. But this did nothing to assuage the very real Anger felt in Serbia that a country where 43% of the population were Orthodox Serbs, and most of the rest, i.e. Catholic Croats and Muslims, were in Serbian eyes, Serbs under another name, should pass not from Ottoman sovereignty to independence, or better still to Enosis with Serbia, but to another colonial oppressor. Thousands took to the streets in Belgrade to protest, the Crown Prince George told a crowd that he would be proud to lead them in a life-and-death struggle to regain the annexed provinces. Nikola Pašić, who was out of office temporarily at the time, talked of a war of liberation. All this sprang from the view that where there were Serbs, whether in Macedonia, Hungary or Bosnia, there was greater Serbia. While the focus of all nationalist, irredentist groups had previously been on Macedonia, poured over by Greece, Bulgaria and Serbia, this shifted dramatically to the lost provinces of Bosnia-Herzegovina after the annexation. This event also prompted the creation of an an organization Narodna Odbrana, which means national defense, which the Austrians would later claim erroneously was behind the Sarajevo assassination. This nationalist body spread throughout Serbia, over 200 branches, but also into Bosnia-Herzegovina. Its policies at the time were certainly aggressive, raising guerrilla bands, setting up spy networks along the frontier between Bosnia-Herzegovina and Serbia, and generally agitating for a strongly nationalist agenda politically. The Serbian government was placed in an extremely awkward position squeezed between nationalist demands at home and the realisation that there would be no great power support for an act of Serbian aggression against Austria-Hungary, not even from Russia, weakened as it was after its disastrous 1904-1905 war with Japan. So Serbia had publicly to climb down, which they did in March 1909 and agreed to disarm and downgrade Narodna Odbrana a little more than a pan-Serb cultural association, on the surface at least, but although the government had backed down, pan-Serb nationalist sentiment was significantly boosted. Far from going along with the government's forced about turn, some of the 1903 regicides and others who had been agitating in Macedonia, outraged by the Pasic's government's refusal to countenance agitation, decided to set up a secret society, Ujedinjenje ili smrt union or death, or better known as the Black Hand. It was formed in the spring of 1911, with Apis, four other of the regicides, and two civilians as the founders. The aim was to unite all Serbdom and to make Serbia the leader of a pan-southern Slav, Slav or Yugoslav, which means the same thing, movement. Serbia would, in other words, become the Piedmont of the Balkans. No surprise then that its proselytising newspaper was called simply Piedmont. Induction into the society was through a ritual which seemed to borrow some elements from Freemasonry, with a hooded figure presiding over the ceremonial swearing of the oath by new recruits. This is the oath. I, in joining the organization, union or death, swear by the sun that warms me, by the earth that nourishes me, before God, by the blood of my ancestors, on my honor and on my life, that I will, will, from this moment until my death, be faithful to the laws of this organization, and that I will always be ready to make any sacrifice for it, etc., etc. May God and my comrades be my judges if I should ever violate this oath. Estimates of numbers vary, but overall membership is unlikely to have exceeded 2,500. Candidates had to be of tested loyalty and capable of providing practical service. Although notionally a secret society, it was soon public knowledge, and the Crown Prince even supported its journal Piemont financially. It spread beyond the capital to the border regions with Bosnia and into Bosnia itself through the residual elements of Narodna Odbrana, some of whom, despite the agreement with Austria to convert into a peaceful organisation, were maintaining a a capacity to train militarily. In Serbia itself, however, the Pashic government viewed the secret society with the utmost suspicion, not just for its potentially damaging effects on foreign policy, but because it judged that the Black Hand's real aim was the subversive overthrow of the constitutional monarchy and democratic government. It was as though the work of the 1903 regicides was only half done. Even Austrian diplomats bought into this narrative of a secret society whose primary aim was internal subversion rather than pan-Serb nationalism. It is perhaps for this reason that so little attention was paid to the Black Hand in the immediate aftermath of the assassination and that all the blame was laid at the door of Narodna Odbrana which unlike the Black Hand could be closely linked to the Serbian government and its military. A few months after the foundation of the Black Hand, the Italian invasion of the Ottoman province of Libya set in train a chain of events which led to the final dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. The First Balkan War saw an alliance of all the southern Slav states and Greece who defeated the Ottoman armies comprehensively, while the Second Balkan War, next year, involved the victors fighting over the spoils. Serbia did best out of all these wars and recovered its former heartland, Kosovo, which had been Ottoman territory since 1389. The patriotic fervour aroused by the Balkan Wars diluted for a while the antagonism between the Pashic government and the Black Hand. The latter played a useful role in Macedonia and what was to become Albania. And Colonel Apis was promoted and made head of the Intelligence Division of the General Staff, which gave him unparalleled control over Narodna Odbrana agents throughout Habsburg territories. So the warm glow of national unity soon gave way to extreme tension as the Pasic government wanted to install civilian (coughs) civilian administration into the newly acquired or, as the Serbs claimed, liberated Serbian territories. The military and the Black Hand, by contrast, were united in wishing to see a continuation of military rule. When the government in April 1914 issued a decree Formally subordinating the military to civilian authority, the crisis boiled over, and it seemed that the government must either fall or be replaced in a coup d'etat. Only the intervention of the great powers, notably Russia and France, saved the government. And Pashish looked to the elections of June 1914 to enhance his position. This was the political backdrop to the burgeoning Sarajevo conspiracy. In Bosnia, As elsewhere in Europe, attempted assassinations were not rare, but the one which influenced many young idealists of a pan-Yugoslav persuasion was the attempt made by a man called Jerajic to assassinate the governor of Bosnia. This was in June 1910. Having failed in his attempt, Jerajic committed suicide, but his grave became a shrine for those who broadly described themselves as supporters of Mlada Bosna, Young Bosnia, which followed in the well-worn path laid out by Mazzini and the Carbonari in Italy and other revolutionary move- movements in the la- latter half of the 19th century. It drew their inspiration from writers like Schiller and other apostles of the Romantic movement through to the works of Bakunin, Marx and Dostoevsky. Leon Trotsky, then in Vienna, took a keen interest in Mlada Bosna and met a number of its senior figures no doubt influencing them in an even more radical direction but it would be misleading to think of mlada bosna as having any formal structure it was more a loose collection of youth movements and revolutionary cells who were not coordinated and only imper- imperfectly linked usually by intermediaries its sarajevo cell contained a young schoolmaster danilo ilic who would later be involved in the Archduke's assassination and in fact executed. It was probably there that the first thoughts of a violent attack on a Habsburg High official uh, were adumbrated against a background and a backdrop of increasing anti-Austrian sentiments not only in Bosnia but in Croatia, Dalmatia and Slovenia. Interestingly, only a few weeks before the Sarajevo assassination, the Serb and Croat student organizations in Vienna, Prague and Zagreb all voted to amalgamate. But it was principally in Bosnia that the violent revolutionary fervor against the Habsburg rule was strongest. One person who was particularly alive to the dangers to the empire from the southern Slavs was Crown Prince Archduke Franz Ferdinand. His solution was the radical Serbs' nightmare, trialism, by which he envisaged a rejuvenated Habsburg dynasty, with himself on Franz Josef's death ruling an empire no longer of two parts, but of three parts, Austria, Hungary, and the Southern Slavs. Some at the Habsburg court, like the head of the armed forces, Konrad von Hutzendorf, believed that this could only be brought about effectively By annexing or absorbing Serbia into the Habsburg Empire, the final solution as he saw it to dealing with what he described as this nest of vipers in Serbia. Conrad does not seem to have considered that absorbing this nest into the Empire might cause at least as much trouble as having them over the border. Either way, Franz Ferdinand's trialist thinking, even without Conrad's aggravating variant, would be the death knell to Serb ideas of creating a South Slav or Yugoslav state with Serbia at its heart and head at the expense of a hollowed out Habsburg Empire shorn of its Slav elements. Thus the British Consul General in Budapest in a report of 14 July 1914 three weeks after the assassination got it completely wrong when he said that it was an irony of fate that the future ruler who was commonly regarded as a champion of Southern Slav rights should have fallen a victim to pan-Serbian agitation. It was precisely because Franz Ferdinand wanted to strengthen the position of South Slavs within the empire, that his aims were in such violent conflict with those who sought to unite all the Southern Slavs outside the empire. Gavrilo Princip made this point fairly explicitly at his trial when he said that the Archduke would have harmed Serbs because he would have carried out certain reforms which would have prevented our, i.e. Pan-Slav Union. Chabrinovich, another of the assassins, picked up the Conrad point by saying that the Archduke meant to create a federal Austria which would have included Serbia as well. We've mentioned Colonel Dragutin Dmitrievich, also known as Apis, already. But given his central role in the conspiracy, we should look at him more closely. To his admirers, he was regarded as a cultured, honorable man, extraordinarily resolute, and born to plan, organize, and command, while others carried out his orders unquestioningly. He was, said one, Mazzini and Garibaldi rolled into one. Possessed of a magnetic power and able to inspire unqualified devotion. <coughs> Whether he realised that the result of the assassination would be a European war, we shall never know. He was executed at Salonika in 1917, accused on trumped up charges of attempting to assassinate the Crown Prince. He was essentially executed because Nikola Pashic had concluded that he needed to be removed as he was becoming too powerful. Again, the 1903 regicide cast a long shadow, not just for Apis, but for those like the Prince Regent and Pasic who feared that Apis could repeat his 1903 atrocity. We've now looked at the reasoning behind the assassinations, what about the mechanics? We know that the assassins did all they could at their trial to cover their tracks and avoid implicating the Serbian authorities. This was in line with the instructions they'd been given by black-hand operatives to commit suicide by cyanide pill as soon as the attempt was over. But painstaking reconstruction has taken place over the century since the assassination, which suggests a course of events as follows. Gavrilo Princip, seen here at 16, whose family were Bosnian peasants, had come to Belgrade as a 17-year-old in 1912. He tried to enlist in the Serbian army, forming up to take on the Ottomans in the First Balkan War, but was rejected humiliatingly as being too much of a weakling. He lived on in Belgrade, where in the louche downtown bars and cafes, he interacted with other young, young Bosnians, Croats and Muslims, as well as Serbs, who shared his desire to rid the South Slavs of foreign domination, whether it be the Ottomans or the Austrians. The Belgrade circle in which Princip moved was moreover very open to ideas of using violence to achieve emancipation. They took as their role model Zeraich, whom we mentioned earlier in connection with the attempted assassination of the then governor of Bosnia in 1910. So Princip and his close friends decided in 1913 on their target, the new governor of Bosnia, General Potiorek. But then in the spring of 1914, a much more appropriate target came into view. Nedelko Chabrinovich, one of Princip's friends and one of the future group of assassins, showed Princip a newspaper cutting announcing that Archduke Franz Ferdinand the hated apostle of trialism, would visit Bosnia in the early summer to watch military manoeuvres in his capacity as Inspector General of the Habsburg Armed Forces. Princip saw this as his great opportunity to strike a blow at the occupier. His co-plotters were Czabrinovic, who'd shown him the cutting, and an old school friend, Trifko Grabej, seen there on the left. Sorry, it's such a poor quality. Though it was clear that Princip was the ringleader. Once the plot had taken vague shape, the plotters needed material and logistical support. They turned to a man called Milan Tsiganovich, a well-known figure in Belgrade, a veteran of the Balkan Wars with proven connections to military circles. More significantly, he'd served under Major Tankosic the right-hand man of Apis, and a fellow founder of the Black Hand. Thus says the Italian historian Luigi Albertini, in applying to Tsiganovich, who was under the orders of Tankasic, who in turn took his orders from Apis, Princip was knocking at the door of the Black Hand. Whether Princip was an actual member of the Black Hand is a moot point. The secretary of its central committee has maintained that he was but others claim that he was too young at 19 to be a member. What is clear is that Princip knew that the Black Hand was the place to go to get arms and bombs, and assistance in making a clandestine entry into Bosnia. The bigger question is whether the assassination was entirely the work of the Black Hand, as Apis was to claim much later, at a time when he was facing execution, or were they simply reacting opportunistically when Princip came knocking? I favour the latter. What is not in dispute, however, is that Siganovic provided the boys with browning pistols, six grenades from the Serbian arsenal at Kragujevac, and cyanide flasks to take after the event so as not to be taken alive. The three assassins entered Bosnia on 30 and 31 May in separate groups. 1914. Czabrinović at a place called Malisvornik, and the other two at Ljeznica. They were helped to avoid detection by the Austrian authorities through Black Hand operatives who'd been infiltrated by Apis into the Serbian Border and Customs Service. Helped by the underground network of the Black Hand, they joined up in the Bosnian town of Tuzla, leaving their weapons behind as too dangerous to carry further. They then entrained to Sarajevo, where another four-man assassination squad had been recruited by the Bosnian-Serb Black Hand member Danilo Ilic, who'd won the confidence of Apis during a stay in Belgrade the previous year. Ilic's team included a Bosnian Muslim revolutionary, Mohammed Mehmed Mehedbasic, and two schoolboys, 18-year-old Svetko Popovic and 17-year-old Basho the very youngest of the assassins. The two students were local Sarajevo boys who didn't meet the Belgrade assassins till after the event. Part of Illich's thinking in recruiting these youngsters was almost certainly to muddy the waters as much as possible to prevent the trail leading back to Belgrade. It was Illich who collected the weapons from Tuzla and while himself unarmed, distributed the guns and grenades to the six putative assassins. The day of the Archduke's visit was as inauspicious as possible. The 28th of June, St Vitus Day, was sacred in the Serbian calendar, being the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, when the medieval Serbian kingdom was laid low by the Ottoman Turks. In any Serbian nationalist eyes, a visit by the Archduke to Sarajevo with a population whose largest component was Serb would seem a provocation. The royal party on that morning drove along the Miljatska river down the Appel Quay towards the town hall. Town hall is up there and they drove their initial route this way past the two bridges and the three bridges and then ended up at the Town Hall or planned to end up at the Town Hall. Here, however, um, a grenade was thrown. The six conspirators were lining the whole route, a regular avenue of assassins, as they were later called by the Archbishop of Sarajevo. And the first to be passed by the Archduke's car, Mehmed <coughs> basic nothing, claiming that there was a policeman too close by. But the next, Cebrinovich hurled his grenade at the royal couple. <coughs> it hit the folded canopy at the back of the car but then bounced off and only exploded under the following car in- injuring some of its occupants. Cebrinovich was quickly captured as he tried to escape, jumping into the Miljatska river while the, wounding, wo- while the wounding, wounded were being tendered. <coughs> The blast from the grenade was very audible, and in the ensuing confusion, the Archduke and his party drove on safely to the town hall, where they were received by the mayor. After a stilted exchange of speeches of welcome, the Archduke had interrupted the mayor, asking what was the good of the mayor's (coughs) speech when someone had thrown a bomb at him. The party continued with, by our standards, remarkable sang-froid, carry out the official program. The royal couple had originally planned to drive back along the Apple Quay, so they're at the town hall, and the original <coughs> plan was for them to come back along the Apple Quay and then turn right here into Franz Josefstrasse and visit the old city. But crucially the party around uh, the Archduke decided that they would skip the visit to the old city and continue straight along the Appel Quay. Unfortunately, nobody told the driver. So, actually that makes it even clearer, I think. Uh, General Potiorek, who was riding in the front of the car and who had, as you will recall, been the plotter's original target, realised what was happening when the uh, car started to turn into Franz Josefstrasse and shouted at the driver to stop, reverse, and continue along the quay. And here you can see the car, the wheels (coughs) of the car are are just turning, and this is Franz Josef Strasse here, so he's just about to start his turn into Franz Josef Strasse, and then Potiorek, who's sitting in the front there, will stand up and say, idiot, you're going the wrong way, (coughs) Uh, we should be going all the way along the, the quay instead. So the driver stopped to reverse and continue along the quay, but at this point it had slowed to a halt. Princip, who was only feet away, hardly able to believe his luck, stepped forward with his Browning revolver and shot at the Archduke. That's that's an artist's impression of it. He then turned to aim at General Potieric, but in the melee his arm was jostled and he shot. Sophie, the Duchess. (coughs) The World War was now only 37 days away. The Austrians' immediate reaction was to blame the Serbian government and its nationalist but largely cultural and propagandist arm, Narodna Odbrana. The Black Hand hardly got a mention. This wasn't because the Austrians were unaware of the secret society, but because, as I said earlier, they saw it as an internally subversive organisation aiming to overthrow the Serbian state and the Pashic government in particular. If the Austrians had aimed at the right target, Pashic would have been able to claim that the Black Hand and his government were in violent conflict, conflict, though he would also have had to admit that the Serbian state was largely powerless to restrain them. The crucial point here is that if the culpability rested on an organisation effectively at war with the Sub-Serbian government, it hardly made sense and was certainly unreasonable also to declare war on the same government and its state. And if Austria-Hungary unreasonably declared war on Serbia and set in train the concatenation of events with which we are all now well familiar, then the culpability was largely Austrian and that of their German allies. Did the Pasic government know anything of the plot in advance? It's clear that they'd heard from informers something of it, and even that a group of plotters were planning to travel into Bosnia to ki- kill Franz Ferdinand. The Pashish government, when informed of the plot at a cabinet meeting in early June, agreed at once to send instructions to the border authorities to prevent any such crossing. But as we've seen, It was too late, they'd gone in on the 30th and 31st of May. The assassins were already in Bosnia. Should the Pasic government have informed the Austrians? It appears that they did, but only in the most oblique terms. The senior Serb diplomat in Vienna called on the Austro-Hungarian Minister of Finance on the 21st of June, a week before the assassination, to suggest that a visit by the Archduke on the anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo would be regarded as a provocation, and that some young Serb might, as he put it, put a ball cartridge in his rifle or revolver. The Austrian minister was so unimpressed that he didn't feel it even necessary to mention this warning to the Austrian foreign minister. However, much one could wish that the Serbian government had warned the Austrians more explicitly, Pasic was faced with a difficult balancing act. To have been more specific, assuming the government did know more, would have invited the Austrian accusation that as the government knew about the plot in detail, they were either behind it or should have been able to prevent it. We shall probably never know how much Pasic knew. What was certain was that he would not at all have welcomed war with the Habsburg Empire at a time when Serbia was so weak, having fought two major wars in 1912 and 1913. As for Princip, scenes from whose trial you can see. (coughs) He was sentenced to death. The main plotters are in the front row. He was sentenced to death by the Austrians, but as he was under 20, the sentence was commuted to imprisonment for 20 years in the harshest of conditions in the fortress of Theresienstadt. Many innocents died just because they were Serbs in the reprisals for the assassination, as you can see from the slide of these hangings in Trebinje. But Princip died in prison of virulent tuberculosis, which had got into his bones and which led to his arm being amputated. He died in April 1918, seven months before the end of the war. On the wall of his cell, two lines of verse were found which read, our ghosts will walk through Vienna and roam through the palace, frightening the Lords. Thank you very much.